When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we really left our listeners again with a cliffhanger, which <laughs> I think we uh, always love doing, um, either if it's for our pleasure or a certain sadistic humor we have. Um, but, right, our listeners are really going to get both now the deep dive into how Emily found her passion for the recorder from childhood, but also what really comes through is how she crafts and that was how you described it adam when we've been discussing this outside of the recording um in secret yes yes what you'll never hear listeners um the behind the scenes (laughs) uh how she crafts the narrative of um her art and that really, really starts to uh, shape out in part two. Yeah. One, one thing that I, that I think readers can listen for, aside from an incredibly dramatic and exciting moment where she almost chooses the French horn. Sorry. Um, no, one thing, one thing I think that our readers can listen for is that Emily does a really great job of communicating her excitement with her vocation. And she does, I think, a, a decent job. I mean, I'm partial because I'm a musician, so I know a decent amount about what she's talking about. But I think she does a decent job of explaining her musical craft with the knowledge that she'll have non-musical listeners. So, yeah. I mean, it's always great listening to somebody nerd out about their about their their profession mm-hmm. like getting getting into the details and showing you that when you're listening to a musical performance it's there's so much that goes into it even apart from the hours of practicing over and over to get the fingerings right mm-hmm. but it's also i mean it's just fun it, it makes for good listening i'm yeah. i i love talking to emily and i i i'm i'm excited to present this to the to the to the listener Yeah, I am too. And I really find it so important how you phrase that, Adam, because there's a lot of moments in this part where um, Adam comes from his musicology, I come from my experience in the performing arts, and we're trying to find ways to communicate these ideas to different audiences. And I think it's also important because Emily is able to turn um, and pivot to every audience we're trying to address. 
And I think right. that just demonstrates her mastery over her instrument um, and how she can explain it. So I think on that, yeah. we are ready to present part two of Emily O'Brien's interview. I'm really hoping, I'm really hoping that we capture the fancy horse people demographic. <laughs> and if everyone listening doesn't know what that reference is, you will You're soon, about to. Uh, you'll find out. Yeah, that's Stay our, tuned. again, Adam and his cliffhangers. <laughs> I'm curious what your experience was just growing up and um, I know you played uh, multiple instruments as a child. I'm curious like what um, what your like how often you had lessons, um, what, who your musical influences were. Sure. Both living and um, deceased and, and just every all that stuff. So my parents are both classical musicians. Um, I was born in Vienna where they were music students. Mm. And um, when I was a little kid, my dad built harpsichords and clavichords. My mom was a composer and piano teacher and music theory teacher, which she still is. Um, and so they, there was lots of classical music at home. Um, I just want to interrupt that when, when, our, when our listeners started listening to this video and found out that you're a professional recorder player and bicycle accessory maker, they probably <laughs> thought that was the weirdest profession that they were going to hear for at least an hour. But then they found out that your dad builds harpsichords. <laughs> well, he doesn't or do used, anymore. Used he, to. He builds, he, he's building guitars now, but in the middle of that, he yeah. was a conductor and music teacher and composer and farrier. Uh, he is just retired what, from- What's a farrier? A blacksmith driving around making horseshoes. Whoa. He's just retired from that. <laughs> that was his, <laughs> that was his uh, other change of careers. Are you guys Amish? No. <laughs> my, my mom's family is Mennonite, but not Amish. Oh, really? I was but, uh, surprisingly, so I mean, you play you play an instrument that's most associated with the 15th and 16th centuries. Your dad has a or had an, a couple of occupations that are most associated with the. Well, I mean, you guys, it's it's kind of it's kind of incredible. I've never met somebody. I mean, I still haven't met your dad. I've never met somebody who made black uh, did blacksmithing for a living. <laughs> yeah, you know, he lives in he lives in Virginia, and there are a lot of fancy horse people. Um, what oh, you okay. probably also don't realize is that, in a, especially in an area like that, farrier work is essentially like orthopedic shoeing for horses. Huh. Um, so it has a lot to do with, some of it has to do with like supporting the foot so that the horses can do, can like pull more weight or carry riders over rougher terrain and that kind of stuff. But some of it also is therapeutic has to do with um with supporting injuries or correcting issues from from the way they stand or the way they walk um horses are on their feet all the time they can't really sit or lie down for very long at a time their bodies are just not built for it they mostly sleep standing up even um and so if you imagine if you walk around all day and you're on your feet all day in a shoe where the sole is too low on one side and not on the other, 
like that's going to cause you maybe ankle problems, knee problems, hip problems, back problems. You can be pretty uncomfortable, but at least you can go home at the end of the day and take off that stupid shoe. <laughs> but if that's your foot, if it's nailed on, it's well, that's, I mean, it's not, hopefully that's not oh, what's mean, nailed on. That's your actual, if that's your actual foot. Oh, you mean, you mean the, the um, can, can be off kilter. All right. Yeah. That is, so that then, is fascinating. That is so there. then that's when you need, that's when you need a shoe that will compensate for that or yeah. take care of that or make sure that, you know, horses ho stand on their hoof and that grows out and it gets worn down um, depending on what they're doing. So that has to be trimmed appropriately and stuff. It's a very interesting topic. You can go on and on about it. Um, so any, but anyway, that, that's, my dad started doing that when I was in college. Um, but when I was growing up, he was a music teacher most of the time. Um, and we always did a lot of playing and singing at home. Um, we, and I, I played clarinet in middle school and French horn in high school and I had piano lessons that didn't go very well. Um, <laughs> I, uh, my, my mom was involved with, um, modern music organizations. Um, they both did a lot of composing when I was growing up. And um, so it wasn't, it, it was, it was not so much that I thought, well, I need to, of course, I need to become a musician. It was just sort of, well, that's what, just what you do. <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was just the natural, um, the natural thing to do. And uh, so I had a double major in recorder and French horn in college. Um, but when you have two instruments that don't have a whole lot to do with each other, you just have to practice twice as much. Yeah. And there's only so many hours in the day. And you might not really realize this, but recorder actually is a lot more versatile and has a lot more interesting and varied repertoire, in my opinion, than horn does. Yeah. Um, it has a lot more really good solo literature and um and i had more more playing opportunities on the recorder so that's kind of what i stuck with also recorder is a great instrument if you're a little bit of an instrument junkie uh <laughs> right because there's like a thousand different kinds yeah yeah because you have close to a thousand years worth of repertoire and instruments and styles and it was it's a family of instruments that comes in a lot of sizes and you are expected to play all the sizes yeah one thing and there's also a bunch of different pitch standards that are related to um historical pitch standards in different times and different places um so you so never run one, out of one thing one thing i'll say to, to our audience and to andrew um is that if you're is that I don't recommend the Wikipedia clickhole as a way to deal with your pandemic depression. But if you're planning on it anyway, the recorder family is a really great Wikipedia clickhole. <laughs> I speak from experience. Um, and it, it really, no, it, it really is fascinating how, um, how delicate the instruments were, you know, 500 years ago. Mm. Um, I mean, it's not, they're not, magnificently delicate compared to some of the other fascinating things that they were doing back then, like building bridges and so on. But it, it, it really is worth a gander oh, to, 
to just to just get a sense of like what um, what all of the different instrument possibilities are and all the different compositional possibilities and all the ways that people have of making these things make a sound mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So which part of this magnificence did you focus on once you decided that the recorder was going to be your instrument? Did, so you went to college for, for recorder and French horn and then you went to Germany to study? Or? Yeah. So, I mean, the recorder... The way that I really picked the recorder is they gave me one to play with when I was a little kid and I liked it and I never gave it back. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, you know, I always, the way that people end up, the way that people originally picked the instrument that they end up spending their life with is often more serendipity than anything else. Yeah, it's um, often that, that simple. And that's, and that's kind of what it was for me. Um, and what, so what really attracted me to Renaissance and Baroque music was that I played recorder and that's what you do. And that's sort of your meat and potatoes. Um, and so I, but when you, you kind of, the main time periods that you focus on when you study recorder typically are Renaissance ensemble music, um, Baroque ensemble and solo music and modern music. Um, which is a pretty broad and extremely varied category. And for recorder players, by the way, modern kind of means anything after like 1920. Oh, okay. We call that modern. <laughs> anything in the last hundred years or so, um, it counts as, counts as uh, contemporary, mm -hmm. but which people sometimes kind of gripe about because somebody a hundred years ago is certainly not contemporary in anybody <laughs> else's in anybody else's definition except for a recorder player yeah, but that, that um, means that um that puccini is contemporary pretty much so yeah but um but that's that's where you and as an undergrad you expect to be proficient at proficient or conversant with all of these styles and the expectations of all of these styles. Um, some people, especially in Europe, are more inclined to specialize in one particular style or literature, um, one particular time period. Um, but usually, but even if you do, you have to have, as a recorder player, you have to have a certain, um, a certain familiarity and fluency with main Renaissance and Baroque styles. Um, you should at least, you know, know the difference between 17th century Italian ornamentation and 18th century French ornamentation. They're pretty different. Um, so that's, so that's, that's where, that's that. And typically recorder students study in more than one country and especially in Europe. That's, that's pretty typical. There aren't that many places in the U.S. that have recorder programs, so there are a handful. Um, but it's pretty typical to study in more than one country for recorder players. But Most... what took you to Germany instead of, say, going to Italy or going to France? Um, I went to the place I went for a specific teacher. Mm. Um, and there are, lots of, there are lots of reasons. A lot of people study in the Netherlands. Uh, that's, a, that's kind of the biggest place for recorders these days. Um, there but but that was why i went why i went there and i had a number of years off in between college and 
um, and when I went to Germany and mm -hmm. I was there for two years. Um, and that also the, you know, there's different programs focus on some focus more on specific periods, some focus more on other things. Um, mm. And so I'm curious, considering that, that all of the music you've said you, you tend to focus on was original, originally would have been, a lot of it would have been handwritten. Maybe there would be some uh, methods for block printing or- um, But there was absolutely printing. I mean, they they did they did movable type for um, for they, recorder music even. They did movable type for music. The um, the first book of mo movable type music, which is like the Gutenberg Bible for music, is the Harmonices Musices ad Hecaton A, <laughs> published by Ottaviano Petrucci in I think 1501. That's fascinating. And that is a book of of um, Mostly vocal pieces. Um, I think maybe, maybe there's a couple of really strictly instrumental pieces, but all of these things are things that instrumentalists would also play. Um, but they're multi-part polyphonic pieces, madrigals, chansons, that sort of thing. Um, and it's a sort of a selection of the greatest hits of the time period. So pretty much if you're, if you're looking for good music, from that time period if it's in that book it's going to be pretty good it was it was a collection of the the good stuff that's um, very cool and you can nowadays <clears throat> if you're looking for stuff like that imslp.org is internet music score library project there are a lot of scans from libraries and collections of original sources yeah, like that we so put a link um, and and the hecaton is a really really beautiful it's a it's a beautifully printed book. He did a really nice job. That was done with triple impression printing. So the lines were printed and then the music notes were printed in another step and they had to be really aligned on the page so that the note heads would get, end up in the right place and then the text was printed in another step. And later on they did they had music movable type that has the lines and the note are on the same block of type. Mm. So when you see the printed music the lines look a little bit notchy, a little bit dashed, because each each segment of the lines is on a different piece of type. And mm. so some of those can be a little harder to read. Um, That's fascinating. And then so, later on, you have engravings. Yeah. So this is actually answering the question that I was building to, which is what what is your sort of scholarly involvement mm -hmm. with these early um, composers and printers? Yeah. Um, other, this varies with recorder players. Some are more involved with the scholarly side of it than me. Mostly um, I play from original sources a lot of the time, partly because it's convenient, partly because I don't like the, um, I don't always like the editions that are available. Um, a lot of Renaissance music was originally written with no bar lines and modern editors put the bar lines in to make modern musicians a little more comfortable. Um, but that sort of arbitrary artificial visual barrier does affect how you interpret that piece in ways that you might not even always be aware of. Um, so that, so some of those things, um, it's, 
as long as the original is reasonably legible. And it does take more practice. The notation looks a little bit different. Um, it has some bigger differences when you go earlier. Um, sometimes it has clefts that you're not as familiar with. Um, so it is sometimes more challenging. Um, sometimes maybe not. And there's there's other things, especially with, with 18th century music, um, that's very, very legible. You just have to kind of get used to the, the handwriting. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, and some, and some things like my, my big solo piece project, mm. especially during the pandemic has been, um, I started with just the, the Chacon from the end of the second Bach violin partita. And now I've also worked up, been working on the rest of the violin partita. And there are two sources for that, for those um, violin sonatas and partitas that are on IMSLP. One is Bach's own handwriting, and the other one is copied by Anna Magdalena Bach. And they're very, very similar. Um, there's, it's a, she was a very good copyist. She, um, I'm assuming she was a, a relative. She was his wife. Right. Oh. And um, and so you can you can get you can download both of those scans of both of those sources from IMSLP. And so for the Chacon, that is a pretty long and complicated piece with a lot of um, a lot of chords, a lot of double stops in the violin. That uh, for our listeners, a double stop is when you have a violin is four strings. Double stop is when you press down two strings at the same time and play them yeah. simultaneously, which is usually not a technique that's available to recorders. Not so much. And there's, and the way that it's written, there are up to four notes sounding at a time, which a violin can't actually play all four strings at once because of the curvature of the bridge. So there are, even a violinist has to do some, there are some things that are not that are expected that you do a little bit differently well, than literally they do what's called theirs. arpeggiation which means yeah. playing the notes in close sequence right so on a recorder you can do the same thing it's a little bit it's a little bit different and the violin really can play two notes simultaneously um and a recorder can't so that i really did completely transcribe and made my own arrangement for the modern style tenor recorder that i that i play which has a range that means that I really don't have to do very much transposition to get it to fit. Um, although there are some things that I have to decide how to handle all the, the parts where there's multiple voices going on at once and a lot of you know parallels with two strings happening together and that kind of stuff that I really had to decide what to do with. Um, the rest of the partita is, doesn't have nearly as many complicated decisions to make about mm-hmm. how to play it because it just doesn't have as many chords in it. And so that kind of thing, um, I can work, I can just play it directly off of the original manuscript. I have to, for the key that I'm using, I have to pretend like I'm playing a G alto on a C tenor and read it up an octave. <laughs> but right, so we will, we will include, uh, a version of the partita being of the partita, or maybe just the chacon being played by a violinist. So people can hear. It's really worth the effort to. I mean, you have to listen to it a bunch of times 
and it gets better each time. But even yeah. I, I think even the first listen through, it's it pulls you over. So it's an amazing, it's an amazing piece. Um, and I will have that up. I'll have a version of me playing it up on YouTube at some point. Hopefully not in too long. But this um, is, and this, I have performed it a couple of times. But this uh, is a this is but this is a typical day for a recorder player, right? I mean, recorder players are known for being the sort of magpies of the music world. Oh yeah. Where no other yeah. no other uh, musicians' music is safe from you guys. You you'll take like a, a double bass piece mm -hmm. and, and trans transcribe it for soprano recorder. We 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 do a lot of we do a lot of thievery. Um, <laughs> the, you know the way that we the way that we approach the recorder today is not really the same as the way it has been approached at any other time in history. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really kind of true of a lot of instruments. Um, but of course, during the 18th century, we didn't have, you didn't, a recorder player was not expecting to play 16th century consort music and have those instruments available and also 20th century compositions and have those instruments available and maybe mix and match them. We do, a, and a lot of the, um, we do a lot of things where we'll take keyboard music or orchestral music from the 18th century and arrange it for a consort of recorders, which in a way is an approach that would be a little bit more, and we expect all the parts to be interesting and all the parts to be somewhat um, independent, not so much just like the stereotypical boring viola part. So in a sense, what we are doing is taking 18th century music and using 21st century instruments to play it in a with an approach that's maybe a little bit more like a 16th century approach um in that in that we have a lot more kind of equally important consort voices mm. um and that so that's that kind of thing is pretty typical. And in terms of the use of the recorder in the 18th century, it certainly does have a lot of solo music written for it. Vivaldi wrote recorder concertos. Um, it, there's recorder parts in a number of Bach cantatas. There's recorder parts in a lot of other orchestral music. It's more likely that people who played recorder also played flute or oboe. And it wasn't as expected that there would be this whole bunch of people who basically are recorder specialists and expect all of this like hugely demanding solo recorder literature. So all of the things that we even think of as the big unaccompanied solo recorder pieces like Telemann Fantasias or the Bach flute partita, those really are flute pieces. Um, there's, and, and we just steal them flagrantly. Um, there certainly are things like hot to tear preludes that are specifically for recorder mixed in with the ones for flute, and those are denoted with a little recorder beak next to the next to the line of music really when it says it's for recorder. Um, so, so the implication we, there was that you were expected to play both a recorder and a flute, and so you just got a, a book of etudes for both. Well, or even if you're even if you're not, because this book I think is also written for amateur musicians, many of whom are not doublers, but that this book has something for you regardless of which one you play. I see. Um, but we don't have thing. We don't really have an equivalent from the 18th century or earlier 
of something like the Bach violin so pieces that are really that meaty as unaccompanied solo pieces for the recorder. So I'm uh, getting back getting back to your big sort of Bach project. I'm curious what you like. Is that is this something that you plan on playing? Is this something that you're you're saving for when you can concertize again? Or no, I've I have played I have performed it. Um, I haven't performed the whole partita yet, but uh, I did. Um, I did perform the Chacon on a, a virtual concert that I did a, a couple of virtual concerts this summer. Oh, um, wow. I would refer you to the video, except that I would rather that you wait until I put up a new version of it because that was last summer and I can play it better now. <laughs> All right, you can be patient. But it's um, you know it's one of those pieces that anytime you ever record it or put it up, it's always going to be a snapshot of your journey with this piece because you're never done with it yeah that's that's something that i've i mean i'm not a professional musician but i've tried to practice piano basically every day since the pandemic started because you know mental health is important and also because it was an opportunity it's like we were saying before it's something that i that i have done at various times in my life and i had let go of and now I've picked back up and I'm really glad that I did. And one of the things that I notice is that I will, I will take pieces that I learned as a kid. These are simple pieces. I was never, you know, I was never playing like the list transcendental etudes or something like that. But um, pieces that pe my, my interpretation will be radically different now that I'm in my thirties than it was when I was in my teens. And it's such yeah. a fascinating thing. And, and it's, it's something that I, that, I, that I wish for all of our listeners is, is to have like a hobby that, that's, that's so intellectually stimulating. Um, because I, I, I think, I think I've, it, it feels like I've only been playing piano in my life for about a year. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what a difference it is. And, and I, I started playing when I was maybe eight. And I've, I've been playing a little bit continuously since then. And yet it, 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 I, I sort of feel born again on the instrument. It's, it's completely different and it's completely new. Well, and also daily practice, man. I mean, yeah. Even if it's just practice. for 10 minutes, that's the thing is yeah. that I don't, when, when I say daily practice, I literally mean at least once a day for at least a few minutes, I'll sit down to the piano and work, yeah, work but, on something. 10 minutes, 10 minutes a day for six up. days is way better than one hour on one day. Mm. Right. And, it's also I mean, less frustrating. And <laughs> there's, I mean, there's lots of, I can refer you to lots of interesting stuff to read about practice technique and psychology yeah. studies. Yeah. This. Well, but, but, um, but, but this but also, doing it regularly is a big thing. Yeah. This also, this also, um, this also gets to, what Andrew and I have been doing, and what we've been trying to encourage our listeners to join us in, which is the the the, um, the writing sessions that we do multiple times per week, um, because a lot of people they they wait to write until they feel inspired, but any psychologist will tell you that that inspiration and will follow routine. And you don't believe that until you until you try it, and and you have somebody, and you say, "All right, fine, let's. I'll meet you on Monday, and then I'll meet you on Wednesday, and then I'll meet you on Friday, and we do this three times a week for a few weeks, and you start to realize 
Sunday night, I'm thinking to myself, I need to get a good night's sleep because I'm writing in my group with Andrew tomorrow morning. Um, and I need to be fresh. And then Tuesday, I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to, um, maybe I may not spend a lot of time on it, but my mind, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what am I going to be doing when I sit down to write with Andrew and the rest of the group tomorrow? And so on. And so it becomes the rhythm of your week. And that means that the, uh, the subconscious is drilling away at it at, at times when you wouldn't expect. Yeah. And so it, 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 carries, it carries forward. And it, it's, first of all, it's, uh, it's better to find one or two hours a few, a few times a week, or even half an hour a few times a week to write, rather than waiting for a five-hour chunk Mm-hmm. in a life that may not ever yield you a five-hour chunk and if it did you wouldn't know what to do with it because you're out of practice yeah it it definitely regularity is and and some amount of structure is really helpful mm-hmm. um, and i was just going to comment on so i'm a singer um and it's fascinating when i it's almost i feel like i'm sitting in and eavesdropping in a way because these are similar conversations, but not that you have as a dancer and a singer, because I was also trained as a dancer, a ballet dancer. And it's all about exercise. So even for the voice, like it's really yeah. about maintaining um, your posture and supporting your diaphragm, all of that. Um, but again, I think some people from the outside think singers just have an inspirational moment and they are inherently um belters i mean yeah your voice definitely sometimes you have more better attributes than others depending on the voice um but i find it so interesting that you're a cyclist and um i'm wondering is that do you feel that that really helps you with your performance i mean I certainly don't have an A-B comparison because I've been a cyclist all my life and I've been a musician all my life. So what do I know? Um, I, you know, I, I do a lot of, not this year, cause this year is all, everything's all different, but, um, but generally I do a lot of long distance riding and I find that is kind of a great time to like, let your mind wander and a lot of times I'll find myself rolling over things that I'm practicing things that I'm working on um a certain amount of a certain amount of mental practice takes place then I don't know that that's necessarily a proven strategy or anything um it's you know if you play a wind instrument it certainly is helpful to have some degree of aerobic fitness mm-hmm. I don't um I know lots of I know lots of musicians who do some sort of athletic endeavor and lots who don't. So um I can't I can't so much comment on it. Uh I uh yeah, I don't really have a whole lot of comparison because I've never not yeah. been a cyclist. So um I, I, I can add a single data point which doesn't correlate with anything, which is that when I was growing up, the principal French horn player of the New York Philharmonic took up two chairs. Um, so he was definitely not a cyclist, but he was a really good French horn player. Yeah. Um, well, it, being, being trained in musical theater, I think it's just a very different experience because you have to be fit. Right. Well, because you have to do sword fights and things. 
Right. Or or dance. Well, no, you have routines. to do spell. You have to do kicks and. Well, what musical well, you're doing. Okay, let's say I was doing. <laughs> if you're doing Kiss Me, Kate, you better know how to dance. Right. Um, uh, but again, and I guess I always focus on my art comes out of my body. Like, I run a lot. So I run, I do yoga, I swim. Uh, yeah. I love aerobic activities. But I was always told by my directors and trainer and my vocalist coach, you need to exercise. Because if you don't exercise, you're not going to be at the top of your game. Mm -hmm. um, but it, so it does seem like there's a similarity, but it's not necessarily in terms of because you're going to be seen on stage. Yeah, I mean, you know, the other thing to to remember too is anytime, anytime you're playing an instrument that you want to play at a high level, um, even if even if you're, you know, even if your entire body fitness doesn't isn't as important mm -hmm. there are every playing an instrument is still a physical thing yeah. and the and it and it requires you know it's even if your fingers have to be athletic mm -hmm. even if your feet don't you know it's it's it is something that if you you know if you're a violinist and you put down your violinist for your violin for six months mm -hmm. and then you pick it up and try to play for hours and hours that's a great way to get an injury. Mm, yeah. No, that's, that's a really good point. Like if you have to hold the violin up, which means that these, the arm muscles are being engaged. And it's like that, things yeah, that you and, don't, things that you don't think same. about. And, and with, you know, with recorders, that's, that certainly is also a factor. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them are pretty big and pretty heavy. Um, some of them are not all that heavy until you have to hold it up for the duration of you know a 15 minute check on or something mm. um, there's it's it's certainly you can't you can't ignore the physical aspects of the way mm. that you move your body to to play your instrument um i don't yeah the muscle and i know and i know a lot of musicians also have found that some amount of some amount of athletic training of some kind is also useful in preventing um overuse injuries yeah. and preventing like muscular imbalances and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. um, yeah the same is true for vocalists a lot um and i'm sure you know some musicians like this who are not necessarily always eager to practice um or warm up and there's some vocalists who don't warm up a lot, really? but then they lose their voice. Yeah, we call those ex-vocalists. <laughs> so, it's a, yeah, but just when you were talking about even madrigals, I always think of a madrigal as the medieval, um, the minstrel leading the core along. So you have the harp, the recorder, um, very French court-like. And um, when I was preparing for this with uh, Adam, I kept thinking of Camelot and the lusty month of May. <laughs> and that just like very so, whimsical rendition. Yeah, be, I mean, this is where you kind of, there's some kind of pitfalls here because you want to be, there's, because the word madrigal actually does have a fairly specific meaning in terms of specific styles of 
Renaissance polyphonic vocal music. Mm. Um, and you think of a lot of people kind of think of, oh, that old timey music and they get, they kind of amalgamate Renaissance and medieval and they don't really make that much of a distinction and they just kind of have these like stereotypical images of, you know, Camelot and maybe somebody's hopping around and knocking some coconuts together. <laughs> and uh, and in terms of in terms of the music, um, something like something like now is the month of Maying sounds really, really, really different from something like Macho or something that's something that's even earlier medieval music. Uh, is the yeah. 14th century yeah. uh, French and composer. The, and the tuning systems are different. The, the, um, the tonal language is different. The, the kinds of modes that they use are different. These things sound really, really, really different. And they're, um, I, I think one of, my, one of my favorite stories about a gig like along these lines is one time I was playing for some, celebration of like some medieval society mm. and they told us they wanted us to play renaissance music and we said something like you you sure about that you're the medieval society and they said well we don't know that much about medieval music but we do know enough to know that we like renaissance music better <laughs> and that's and i and that's which is i think renaissance music really is a little easier to listen to for a modern audience it's a little less far removed the earlier you go the more foreign these things sound that, and, that, that um, is a really funny exchange i can imagine being in that conversation and having a part of me die just a little bit <laughs> well i mean i no, i appreciate that because it wasn't like it wasn't like they were asking for mm -hmm. thomas morley and saying that that's medieval music <laughs> You right. Know, no, they I were they were they were copying to their anachronism. It's, it's and they, totally and acceptable. They you know, they they didn't they didn't care. They wanted to have fun party music, and that's what that's what they wanted, and that's all well and good. Right. Um, you know, I like I like the idea of keeping in mind that this like I, I'm all for historical context, and I like the idea of keeping in mind that this was fun party music. Once upon a time, I mean, it's it's hard to think of it that way because the the like rich stodgy people have gotten their hands on classical music and they won't let it go but it's it's fun for me to think about people rocking out to the sort of music that you would now hear I don't know Jordi Saval play in Carnegie Hall or something like that uh the, the like yeah. or even more recent music yeah I mean I'm I'm mostly just saying like with with respect to with respect to these specific things, Renaissance and medieval are very, very different. Sure. Very different things, especially if you're thinking high Renaissance. If you're talking about like late medieval, early Renaissance, well, you know, that's that's another story. But but um, but they're not. It's easy to just kind of let it run together. Everything that happened before 1700. <laughs> that's, right. Well, that wasn't my intention. Yeah. At all, my intention was more of the slippery. 15th century when medieval transitions into Renaissance. And I think that's a lot of what our cultural imagination is now about. Uh, yeah, but that's not what people think of when they think of what they're listening for. They're not, that's not what they're, 
that that sound is not what very many people imagine. Hmm. Um, Which is too bad because there's some good there's some catchy tunes from that era. Yeah, I yeah, like. Of course. Um, uh, but no, it's very. No, it's interesting, and I think it's important. Well, see, this is where you come in, Emily, because the general public is not going to know those differences. Yeah. And I, probably, I, I think we should probably do, won't care. I was going to say, I probably don't care. I can say, I can say if, you're, if you are a person who is sort of interested to mm -hmm. hear what these things might sound like, um, I mentioned the website IMSLP before. They have a number of, some of their features are a little hard to find. But one of the things you can do is you can search music by time period. Mm. And if you look and if you click until you get to the part where you can search by time period, it'll give you a chart with different with times blocked out into different periods like mm. medieval, renaissance, baroque, etc. And if you are interested in just kind of getting a general overview of what some of those things might sound like what I would suggest is click on those, click on a certain time period. Say you click on Renaissance and you can use their category walker features and get a list of a bunch and see a whole bunch of composers. And then think there's a way to even click and see how many entries there are under each one. So just kind of scroll down the list and pick out names that have a lot of pages or even just pick, pick random names because especially the earlier you go, the fewer people there are listed. And just pick some random names of composers and search for those on YouTube and see what you come up with. Mm -hmm. And like try a bunch, of different, a bunch of different recordings from a bunch of different people, especially the Renaissance and medieval things. Largely, a lot of those things are really short. Mm -hmm. um, so you can listen to a whole lot of different stuff mm -hmm. and you can kind of get a, get a little bit more of a talking about falling rabbit holes you can fall down um this is this is a, a strategy that i would recommend just because yeah. you'll you can you can go as as little or as much as you want or just do a wikipedia search for famous composers of the medieval and the renaissance and and look at their dates and the ones that show up a lot on wikipedia will probably also show up a lot on youtube and you'll be able to find a lot of good stuff yeah Something. i like this Something I like to do is to go by personality, which is to to find somebody like Emily, who's who's got a channel, who's got a mm -hmm. bunch of different things from, um, from, you know, a span of several hundred years, and say, oh, I like that. I like that recording. Hear other recordings of the same piece, and then let me expand to other pieces by yeah. the same composer. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, it's but a I more think, inductive I think way to do it. Yeah, I think if you're just kind of trying to get a sense for what different time periods sound yeah. like. Yeah, the terrain. Um, and there a, are, you know, there that's, a, that's a strategy that you might not have thought of. No, I love that. I definitely hadn't thought of it. And I'm, I may actually try that. Well, and I actually think, you know, I want to say, I think a lot of Americans are very nervous of classical music because they're going to get it wrong. And that's why... I really am glad, Emily, we have you on because I think the issue in American culture is it's become such this highbrow concept of wealth and you must have come from a musical family. And this is nothing about your family, but I do think that there is this set 
you must have gone to the opera. You're this highbrow family. And I want people to know it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to confuse the Renaissance and the medieval music. It's yeah. It's important. also okay. It's also okay not to like Beethoven. I've actually I've met people. You, like you, you take you take I don't know the most famous books or the most famous composers, the most famous anything. There's going to be somebody who says, "Yeah, that guy's crap. I can't stand listening to that." And you know what? Go, nope. Nobody There's plenty of people who also you know who kind of who enjoy Renaissance and Baroque music and 20th century music and don't really care for 19th century music. Mm. I mean, that's 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 fine too. The other thing is, and this is something that I think is also worth repeating about Renaissance music and Baroque music. A lot of this stuff really is fun party music. And there's a lot of, um, and especially Renaissance vocal pieces, secular pieces, some of them are really serious and like tear your heart out. Mm. But some of them are like just goofy and dirty. And, you know, people had dirty senses of humor just as much as they do now. And I think more so. I mean, yeah, there's tons of the, the, the madrigals, like some of the ones that I've put on my YouTube channel, some of those are things um, like the, actually the one, the, the silver swan and sing we enchant it. Those are ones that I made for our madrigal night sing along. Oh. And those are things that if we were at, if we were at the, one of those summer music workshops in person, people would be sitting around in a circle with their beers. Yes. Singing these songs because they love them. Yeah, Sing We Enchanted is a song about getting laid. There are so many songs about getting laid. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are so, you know, people have not changed. Like, and and that's, that's the part that really bothers me when I, whenever I listen to some stodgy person, like a, like a news talking head complaining about the latest Cardi B single and about like how, how these people have nothing better to sing about than getting laid. That's all anyone has ever, it's a really good thing to sing about. A lot of people sing about and, that. And it's you need to have some respect for like some of the greatest pieces of music ever written. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you're, going to, if you're going to run down the latest sing single, you can run it down on its own terms. But if that's just a song about getting laid, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's not a reason to criticize a song because if you if you started criticizing songs because they're just about getting laid, you would you would have a very long crop of hair yeah, I mean, before the, you before think, you, you know, were you done. About, if you think about what percentage of music is either religious or it's about getting laid or it's yeah. about getting dumped, yeah, <laughs> or getting rejected, you know. Yeah. So the religious music is "I'm sorry for getting laid," and then the um, men, I wish I were getting laid, or I wish I were still getting laid, or I'm excited to be getting laid. Like one of my favorite, one of my favorite Brahms uh, part songs is called Der Gang zum Lübchen, which means going to my love. And it's, it's about feeling lucky. It's about, it's yeah. about that, that, that Friday night feeling when you're going to, um, when you're going to meet that special someone. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's also, there's also dance music. There's, um, there's festival music. Uh, this is, you know, this is not all like a bunch of monks in their robes and being serious. <laughs> monks in their robes were not serious. They were drunk a lot of the time and then we had a party. 
<laughs> but you but had some really good strategies for us, Emily. So yeah. I feel like I appreciate you know, it. You know, most of the listeners are not going to have this kind of musicology. Um, so I think it's important now they have your, ch they have your channel, they have the website. Now they know, okay, well, I'm curious about some of these uh, centuries. How can I find that type of music? So I think this yeah. is really, you did a nice job and scaffolding that. I think it's really, I, I think it's really useful if you, especially if you go to a list of like popular composers from a certain time period. Mm -hmm. And especially if you go to the ones that are not quite as well known today. Mm -hmm. um, so not like, if you think of like, there's the top tier composers that there's a bajillion videos on YouTube and some of them are great and some of them are crap and some of them are like a little bunch of little old ladies in their living room and some of them are your amateur choir directed by somebody who doesn't know anything about that style blah 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 there's everything mm. but then if you go to like the second tier composers that are not quite as well known then you get the ones where most of the recordings are going to be more serious ensembles and people who have really dived into that repertoire a little further it's a fascinating uh, idea. But, you, but you'll still find a lot of stuff. And then there's kind of the third tier composers where some of them you'll find, some of them you just won't find much at all. Mm. Um, even though there's people out there performing that music, it just hasn't made it onto YouTube yet. So if you're just trying to get a sense for like the overall picture, the overall sound of a certain time period, it's that I think it's that middle group that you want to look for. That's mm, fascinating. Um, we, have, we have the same praxis in in uh, literary scholarship where mm -hmm. you can't really look at Shakespeare to choose the most obvious example and say okay that's what Renaissance English uh, dramas like literary composition was like because obviously he would if anybody else was like him then we wouldn't be talking about him so very often but you can look at some of the worst ones that are still extant and believe me i have it's <laughs> it's not it's not something i'm bragging about it's just it's just part of the process and you can say oh, okay so this is what this is what even the worst playwrights were thinking that every play had to contain right every like the, the worst plays from that era they contain the long flowery speeches and the moments of introspection and stuff like that a lot of the same uh they touch a lot of the same points as shakespeare but yeah. they just make a train wreck of it. And yeah, so and it's, it's, it's a much greater insight into the time period. It's just not as much fun to do. Well, I mean, I guess another, another comparison with Shakespeare is that if you go looking for Shakespeare plays on YouTube, you'll find a ton of them. And some of them are done by people who are real Shakespeare scholars. And some of them are done by like somebody, you know, somebody's high school English class decided to put on a play right. mm -hmm. and some of them are community theater and there's all of those things are valuable and it's great that that's all out there. Um, but it's, if you don't know a whole lot, you're going to have a little bit of a harder time figuring out which ones are, which ones are really a better representation True. of what plays from that time period are really like. Whereas if you take, if you take somebody just a little bit less famous than Shakespeare, and you find a recording of that on YouTube, it's much more likely, not 100% guaranteed, but much more likely to be done by somebody who did 
who, who knew a lot more about that. Yeah, that's overall. fair. I think that's fair. Very few yeah, people, true. very few high school groups are putting on like the Duchess of Malfi or, or something like that. One of these like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, still very good plays from that era, but just not, not by the main guy. One thing that I think we, I would love to talk with you about, um, and then we will say goodnight, um, is that um, at, at least while we're on the subject of drama from that, from that time period, a lot, of the, a lot of these performances would have been really, really all-encompassing artworks, right? Like they, nowadays we go to, let's say a Shakespeare play, let's say, um, or let's say a Christopher Marlowe play when they put them on. We go to them for the linguistic dexterity and for the poetry and stuff like that. We um, do? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you don't? I'm sorry. You go, you go, go for, for the dance? I go for the intense plots. I go for the revenge. <laughs> you go for the soap opera. All right. Yeah, I no, go but, for the soap but, opera. but back then, I mean, people would have gone specifically, there would have been people who went to whatever was playing at the curtain or the rose or the whatever that afternoon because they wanted to see a good sword fight or because yeah. they wanted to hear somebody playing the recorder or something like yeah, that. And there definitely, there definitely were, um, there was there were musical interludes and musical components to Shakespeare plays, and you can even buy a book of everything that the editor has managed to pull together of the the words and the music of this of the pieces of music that they know were performed in those plays. I assume you have um, such books. I have um, books like that. I don't know if I have that specific one that I'm thinking of because it's big <laughs> and expensive, but. <laughs> No, but you um, have books like that, considering your your focus. But but um, yeah, I mean, theater. There there was a lot of theater music, and there's a lot of a lot of it that survives. Um, and also, we think of nowadays. We think of operas don't have dancing necessarily, or they have minimal dancing. But a baroque <laughs> opera had quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of dancing and quite a lot right. of spectacle and fireworks um, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, opera has been giant and expensive and ridiculous for its entire history. Yeah. Well, didn't the 19th century operas have ballet troops? Yeah, uh, yeah, they did. Yeah. They did. And, um, and I can tell you, this is a cute little factoid. Um, the, the famous opera composers that you've heard of, Handel and, uh, like the early ones, I mean, the, the ones who were like court composers, Handel and Haydn and uh, Mozart in that crowd did not get paid as much as the set designer. Mm. The set designer was the guy you went to see because he was the one who was making cranes and pulleys and stuff like that so that the gods could fly. Um, he, he was a busy guy. The, the composer just had to write the music. Who needs that nonsense? That's basically interchangeable, right? Whereas <laughs> well, I the mean, guy there are who was some... rigging up the fireworks, you really want him you really want to give him lots of money for not burning down the theater. Yeah. And there are some rather unremarkable 18th century operas if yeah, you're, sure. and sure. 17th century operas if, sure. you, if you want to go looking for them. Um, I don't think a whole lot of people perform those necessarily. Not so much. Not well, unless there's a reason yeah, to. Kind of like the parallel, I mean, with the 19th, you could do this with any century really, but since I work with the 19th century, if you look into the bestseller list, talk about 
Oh, there's a bunch Talk of about trash. books that scholars don't analyze. And it's not trash. I think it just speaks to the... <laughs> I mean, Adam's always very, like, poo-pooing things. I don't think... <laughs> I don't think it's I'm sorry, I'll be good. I'll be good. I think it's actually very important cultural analysis. It shows us why yeah. was Whitman not being read? Why was Susan Warner's The Wide, Wide World the bestseller? Or... Um, and no one really knows what the wide, wide, wide world is. First of all, you can hardly say it. Um, but it speaks to the themes. It's, it has very generic um, conventions in it. And I'm sure, that in a way, music is kind of similar, this formulaic pattern. And those types of texts are the ones that usually are on the bestsellers list. Like, oh, I recognize this plot. I'm going to buy a book that has... Right. This plot yeah. just interchange the interchanges character. Yeah. Genre fiction. Well, yes, um, exactly. yeah. one, one of the things that we do now in, in university that we didn't even, that I don't even remember doing is, is the, the greater focus on the popular literature to give students a sense of the zeitgeist, like Mary, Mary Rowlandson, to, to choose somebody from Andrews, a little before Andrews era, uh, who wrote this, this, this crackerjack of a memoir about being abducted she was, uh, she was in the, I want to say the Massachusetts Bay Colony, although I don't exactly remember. She was in one of the colonies and she got abducted by Indians mm -hmm. or um, Native, American. Native Americans. And, she, um, and so she wrote this, uh, this story about her. And she, she, she calls it a captivity. She framed it as a conversion narrative, right? Mm -hmm. like, she go, like, like Jonah going into the belly of the whale and coming back out a believer. Um, so she, she, she framed, she framed it like that. Right. And it was, um, as far as I know, it was a very popular, uh, work. Um, and it, it's quite, it's quite good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a remarkable example of its, of its genre. Mm -hmm. It also, but it's, it's decidedly a popular work. And so it doesn't get the same credit that a lot of the great literary works from that era do. And that's a shame because, like we were saying, when you when you when you read a work that was popular at the time, you were much more uh, talking directly to the people who lived at that time and the people who would have read that of a Sunday afternoon, and that would have been what they thought about all week. The way we might be preoccupied by like a Stephen King novel or something like that, something that's that's really well written and really interesting, yeah, um, and, and just and doesn't have that halo. This is also as a you know as a musician i was i've always been my primary interest is in making good music mm. um and i'm I'm more interested in making good making wonderful music that that really works and that speaks to the listener and that speaks to me than I am in really communing with people of past eras mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a historian, <laughs> but at the same time having the it, it really is important to have the breadth of experience with lots of examples of a particular style or a particular region mm. um, in order to kind of live in that live in that style in a way that a musician of that time mm -hmm. would have and read some of the things that they wrote about what they do and what they say you should do or shouldn't do as a as a performer as a player that's fascinating. Uh, because that's that's how you that's how you know what's going on in these pieces um right. that's how you understand how the phrases really work 
and that's and a lot of those pieces that are less well known some of them turn out to be kind of hidden gems too mm -hmm. um but you know you kind of you need to you need to have enough experience with enough of it in order to really you, you kind of even if you don't really care that much about communing with people of the past from a historian perspective you do sort of want to have some idea of where their musical minds were at if you want to make these pieces really as good as they can be mm -hmm. um and That's there's so lot, and there's a lot of music that if you're if you don't if you don't have that you're not going to be able to deliver a really very effective performance it's so interesting as it could be i mean your your sort of stated profession is to play your instrument and have people clap now not 400 years ago and yet <laughs> and yet you and yet you you find yourself looking into what the artist's relationship was with their audience 400 years ago and what their what their relationship was with their music that they played for audiences 400 years ago in order to create the best possible for performance now yeah and there's i mean the obvious thing is for example trills in baroque music which are pretty different from how you, how trills are often performed in romantic music um and in a lot of a lot of times in later music in 19th or 20th century music a trill is there really for the brilliance of that it's kind of for the, it's for the the point is the wiggle is the trilling is the brilliance of that and in um in baroque music you have a few very formulaic specific places where you always have a trill and going into cadences you always have a trill and that trill the important part of it is the dissonance that so you have a written note and the way you trill is you start on the note above the written note and you lean on that note and then you trill down to the written note mm. and the purpose of this trill in terms of the structure of the phrase is that this trill is about causing a dissonance with the chord that's happening in the bass which then gives you this tension and resolution mm -hmm. in cadence and if you play it the way that you would play a trill for later music when it's really there about the brilliance of the wiggle then you completely lose this tension and resolution in the cadence and it's just such a shame so it's i have two things to say and it's much more important to have that what's called the appoggiatura is that right. um that upper neighbor note that you lean on than it is to wiggle more times Sorry, I thought you were done. Uh, I have two things to say. The first is that I think the brilliance of the wiggle is going to be somebody, the name of somebody's biography one day. <laughs> but, but more, more importantly, um, one of the things that you're leaning on very heavily and that I really love, and I really, w uh, I hope that our listeners who are not familiar with earlier music will learn from your discourse, is that early music was a lot weirder and more dissonant and sometimes even more psychedelic than we than we really give it credit for in the modern day and sometimes these early music techniques that the performance techniques that go along with the um that go along with the 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 sheet music um are what unlock the weirdness of an 
earlier piece of music and let you appreciate it in a way. Like if you play, if you play an early piece of music with modern performance techniques, it might sound flat. Whereas if you play it with its earlier techniques, it'll sound as strange in some cases to your ears as it did to the ears of the person who first heard it. Yeah, although the thing with the appoggiatura and the trill, that's not sound, that doesn't sound strange. This is, this is something, this is an aspect that comes up no, in like every it, single, it's, I don't, I don't want to sound, I don't want to say that it's strange and psychedelic because there are things that they write that kind of are a little bit more like that. And this really is not, this is a- yearns in a different way than you're used Emily, to. please put Adam in his place because sometimes <laughs> he, tries, he tries to make everything into this like sexy marketing. You know what? Strategy. I mean, there are, things, my sexy marketing. There, are, there are things you can find that are strange and psychedelic, and in some okay. ways, you we'll really need that. to know. You need to know what you need to understand what strange, what really is and isn't strange about it. And this right. is one of those things where that that tension and resolution before at, at a cadence. This is this is how cadences work in this time period, and yes. this is this is just the basic underlying structure. It's not. It's a little bit like. The way that the way that we have conventions for where you put a comma or where you put a period or where you use a semicolon um, when you use a, when you use a semicolon that's not a weird strange thing there are specific kinds of places yes, that you certainly. use it and this is the and this is the same thing and if you had somebody writing and putting this like mixing up semicolons and commas something comes off as being a little bit weird Yes. And this is this is a little bit like that or you have a you have a phrase that just kind of loses its impact because you had to go back and reparse in your head what you actually just read yeah. because they mixed up their punctuation. And this is a little bit in that in that category where you don't you don't want to be maybe there are times when you really do want to make a specific special effect of doing something against the convention but the convention is there for a specific structural has a particular structural role in that phrase in that piece of music and that tension and resolution where you have essentially a suspension of against a bass harmony is a really important part so if you just kind of ignore the appoggiatura which and just play a fast trill without leaning on that appoggiatura or you put the appoggiatura before the beat instead of on the beat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's something intrinsic to that phrase that you've just lost. So like that, like when you that, that there's an enjambment in poetry and you don't bother to pause. Yeah. Read the meter the way it's supposed to be read that the poet intended for it to be read. Yeah, and so it's a little like, yeah, so it's, so those, and that's, a, that's kind of only the most obvious, um, and the, the most obvious example, and that's like the first thing that you learn, that people learn about Baroque performance practice, if they learn anything about mm -hmm. Baroque performance practice. Um, but it is, especially if you listen to, especially older recordings mm -hmm. of orchestras playing Bach, for example, um, modern orchestras from the, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even um, some of the like classical music for relaxation will have people doing this. 
and they'll have like a modern flute playing playing some Bach thing and they do that at all the cadences <laughs> and there's and there is and they're good musicians with good technique and they're you know they want to make good music but they've missed something important about the the structure of this phrase and the way that this phrase is supposed to speak um and of course it's like with anything else the further down that the further into that world you go mm -hmm. the more things like that you're going to find yeah. well as we conclude i'm going to turn to classical music for studying <laughs> <laughs> on the youtube <laughs> no but in all seriousness, we added some levity. Um, but this was so, I've, I've learned so much from you, Emily. So for that, thank you very much. Well, yeah. thank you. It's been a pleasure. I, I as well. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you for joining us. And, and uh, uh, to our listeners, we'll make sure to include uh, some of Emily's Irv on the, in the uh, notes to our podcast. We'll make sure to include some um, references in the in um, dot org, and we will make sure to uh, we uh, Emily. If you keep us updated, then we will keep our listeners updated. Yeah, especially so if hear whatever new projects that you are involved in. Yeah, and if you maybe are, even if when you start concertizing again. Yeah. And if you're a musician of any level and you're interested in learning more about memorizing music, how to do it, why to do it why it's probably not nearly as difficult as you think it is. Um, I have a lecture presentation this weekend. You can sign up on my website. Um, and then I have a couple of follow-up workshops with memorization exercises. So um, yeah. check it out on the website and you can register there. Yeah. And uh, you can also buy Emily's albums digitally. That's it. Yes. Yep. 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 So thank you so much, Emily. Um, thank you and for joining us. Yeah. Yep, thank you and have a have a good night. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you, thank well. you so much. Okay. Bye bye. See you later. Thank mm -hmm. you.